And I think there's a passage in Isaiah that's also similar. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where is that quote? What's, what, where did you read the quote, though? Like, you said it was quoted? Uh, that is Wisdom uh, Solomon 9.13. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, who, you said who can know the mind of the Lord? What man is he that can know the counsel of God or who can think what the will of the Lord is? Okay. The Lord will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He will take holiness as an invincible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword. And creation will join him to fight against his frenzied foes. So there's a couple things there. First of all, it's talking about the armor of God. And so when Paul is, is talking about that in Ephesians 6... He is pulling that from what we're calling in this study the peripheral canon. That was also from Wisdom of Solomon. Um, but also, notice at the end, in that quote, I said, and creation will join him. So even in that quote is a prophecy of the church. You know, It's not just God that is fighting against his frenzied foes. It, it, the saints and the church join him in spiritual warfare. I've got one more here. For wisdom is the reflection of the everlasting radiance and the image of his goodness. So, in the early church fathers recognized that, and I wish Walton was here right now, the <laughs> church fathers recognized that wisdom personified is Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. Right now, we get that from Proverbs 8. We get that from a passage in, I believe, 1 Corinthians. But we also get it from here. You know, they were pulling from um, the wisdom tradition in, again, what we're calling in this study the peripheral canon. Um, from wisdom. Hebrews 2? Well, that is the next thing. Hebrews 1 3. The sun is the radiance of his glory and the image of his being. So, doesn't it sound like that the author of Hebrews? had this in mind. Wisdom is the reflection of his radiance and the image of his goodness. You know, he's he's building off of that tradition when he's describing who Christ is uh, to the first century believers. So, I thought that was kind of a fun way to start this week, to sort of set the stage. And um, If anyone tells you that these books are never quoted in the New Testament, it, it's just not true. It's just not. <coughs> All right, so we spent a lot of time on this side of our page last week. So I thought it might be helpful to cover this part this week. Um, now, what this is is just a list of statements. And what I, what I really want from this introduction is I want us to build sort of a common ground that we can all sort of agree on, even if we don't agree on... Um, all of the little details, uh, you know, if we have a common, um, just a common understanding and vocabulary, we can build from that in coming weeks. Um, so I thought this might be a helpful way to um, not only cover, again, what we did last week, but also push it a little further. So, so here's a statement. We are all agreed here on the fundamentals of the faith. Is that something we can agree on here in, in this class? We're all agreed here on the fundamentals of the faith. 
what are the what are the fundamentals? The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and everything else that's included in the gospel. That's not all of it, but that's a start. You know, that's a good soundbite version. There's more to it than that. You know, the incarnation, the ascension, giving of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the things that are covered in the creeds. Can we all say that we're all in agreement here on that? That yeah. That's not something that we have to question here in this group. And simultaneously, I mean, the, the gospel is a means to what end? It, it's our relationship with God. Our priestly relationship with God is the most important concern. And everything that we talk about and our worship and everything in our daily lives is only significant in as much as it is about our relationship with God. Um, so those two statements there at the, at the beginning, the ones in bold, that's, that's the start of our pouring the concrete here. Um, so are we good with those two? Can, uh, can we agree that those are, that's part of our concrete right there? Is we're agreed on fundamentals. We're agreed that it's all about our relationship with God, um, the priesthood of the believer. We good to go there? Okay. All right, so the next few statements are about Scripture. Um, scriptural authority means that Scripture is the determining source for instruction in the Christian faith. Is that a, is that a fair way of describing what scriptural authority is? what it means for us. It's for instruction in the faith. We can talk about doctrine. We can talk about um, maybe the more practical side too, but it all fits under that umbrella. Is that fair? There's no there's no tricks here. I'm not trying to get y'all to agree to anything here. This is just that we're trying to lay the conceptual framework so that we're all on the same page. Jerome in, I want to say somewhere around 400 A.D was the first person to um, to block off the peripheral canon from the rest of the Old Testament. We talked about that a little bit last week. He was the first person to do that, and he put it in a, like an appendix um, and said, you know, we're, we're drawing a distinction here between canonical books and ecclesiastical books. That was how he described it. Um, and so the idea was that uh, the other books of the Old Testament are good for formation of doctrine. And these books don't necessarily serve that purpose, but they are still good for instruction in the faith. That was how Jerome thought about it. Um, so, any feedback here with that statement? I've heard that um, like the Maccabees is uh, useful for historical reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not useful for a lot much beyond that in comparison to scripture. <coughs> well, that it's more for historical reference. Are you saying Jerome called the apocryphal? Uh, ecclesiastical. ecclesiastical. He kept it in the Bible, but he sort of relegated it to kind of like an appendix. Um, the end or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, uh, KJV followed suit. They did the same thing. It wasn't until... The King James Calvin? Yeah. 
We, we covered this some last week. It was not until 1885 that the Apocrypha was removed from the Bible. From the King James Version? From all of the Bible. So the King James scholars literally put it in what they gave the King James to be approved? It was in there before then. But did the King James scholars yes. ask them to put it? Yeah, it was in, yeah, it was included. Yeah, But they weren't the first to do that is what I'm saying. I didn't it was, know that they it was also in the Geneva Bible. It was in the Geneva Bible. Yeah. It was in the Armenian, which was the first full Bible that was translated to another okay. translation. I, we have a timeline on the other side of this page. By, uh, by the time Jesus was on the scene, these books were all fully translated and incorporated into the Septuagint, which was the Greek Old Testament. And so these books were carried along in the tradition of the Greek Old Testament. Uh, the Council of Carthage in 397 AD recognized them as canonical, put them in the same category as the rest of the Old Testament books. Um, and then as it started getting translated into other languages, and I have here the Armenian version, that was just the first uh, complete Bible translation into another language. Uh, Old and New Testament, it was included in that. It was in the first complete uh, English Bible, the Coverdale Bible, in 1535. I don't remember if Geneva was, I guess Geneva would have had to have been after that, right? It was a little later. But just a little bit later. It was still in the 1500s. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was in that. Um, I brought, or Dad brought last week, a copy of the Geneva Bible, and he showed how it's actually in there. And that predates the King James Version. So KJV just followed suit with, you know, what, was, what had already been done through church history up to that point. Uh, the Council of Trent, um, in response to uh, Protestants um, trying to strip things down to the bare essentials, um, in response to that, the Council of Trent reaffirmed what the Council of Carthage had said around 400 AD, that these books are considered canonical. It's, we're, we're doing a quick shotgun look at some very complicated church history, so I know I'm not doing it justice, but um, the point is that these books have been in church tradition since the time of Christ. And it wasn't until the revised version in 1885 that it was actually removed from the Bible. Um, now granted, for the most of that history, it has had its own section, like we said, sort of like with a little disclaimer of sorts. With a, yeah, in a lot of cases, yeah. Um, and even today, I think the Anglican Church has a disclaimer about it in their sort of uh, statements of, you know, what we believe, sort of like their version of uh, the Westminster Convention. They have, uh, they have a statement about the Apocrypha but it's similar to what we read from the Geneva Bible. Um, hey, Connor, I'd like to jump in way ahead to where yeah. you want to go here by saying this, but... Um, I mean, if you think about it, Bibles like the Geneva Bible also incorporated a ton of extraneous study notes. Yes. And they also incorporated maps, and they also incorporated lots of other things. My point being that that it's not necessarily a threatening thing. To think that you know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that they considered it scripture just because it was right. it was in there. So you know. They, they, they may have, some people would have thought of it as, as uh, uh, 
commentary, mm -hmm. you know, and so forth. Anyway, I don't want to jump ahead. I think yeah, you yeah, cover yeah. all that. Yeah. I'm just saying that, you know, yeah. just some more context for that. So the Geneva Bible had a lot of stuff in it, it not just the Apocrypha. Right. You know, so. right. And a lot of it was culture specific, too. Yeah. Like a lot of yeah. the notes had to do with things that were going on in their day. Right. We're not saying that those notes were divinely inspired. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. Um, so these, these next few statements are just things that we can consider, and they all sort of bleed into each other. And, um, and it may be that we don't all agree on all, all four of these next statements. Um, that may very well be true. But I put them in here so that we can – it's an opportunity for us to think about this stuff and to talk through it. So uh, we talked last week about uh, this next one. We spent a good deal of time on that, that there are, practically speaking, there are, even within Scripture, there are varying degrees of authority. Like, the, you know, the, the authority of Scripture is Christ. You know, that is, he, Christ is our authority. So even within Scripture, we, we described it, we use the analogy of a, um, a rock hitting a pond, and then the ripples go out in concentric circles. Right, and the closer you are to where the rock fell, the ripples are stronger and, and smaller, and as they go out, they expand, and there's more to it, but it's also weaker at the same time. So, um, you know, I brought up last week how, practically speaking, um, Paul's epistles have more authority in our lives than the book of Leviticus, from a practical standpoint. That's just, that's just the case. I mean, you know, we had an we had an Easter lunch a couple weeks ago, and that ham was really good. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. So Christ fulfills the law. You know, the law is fulfilled. It doesn't take away the fact that that Leviticus is part of our scriptural authority, but there is a there is a hierarchy to these things. Yeah, and what Christ and Paul and the apostles have said in the New Testament. Um, stands above what was written for us in the Torah. Does that make sense? Sure. Is that, it's not the way we normally talk about this stuff, but I think it's helpful for the way we think about these things. The Jews, go ahead, yeah. The separation of, of the laws in the Old Testament, moral laws, dietary laws, civil laws, you know, yeah. so, and a lot of those no longer apply because of, of the grace of God and Yes. Again, it's all about Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, Christ. You know, he, I mean, he, he fulfilled those. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm guessing that Jesus followed the dietary laws. You know, so he fulfilled those, and so the, 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 it was okay for us to, to eat pork, you know, eat bacon. You know, like a lot of well, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this during the Tenebrae service. When, when Christ says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, he's He's praying the Jewish daily prayer. It's, it's a liturgical prayer um, that was built into Jewish custom to pray that So even on the cross, in in new creation, you know the Jewish custom has not completely disappeared, right? So it's not that this stuff is gone completely, um, but it's been transformed and redeemed, and it's under the umbrella of Christ's kingdom and His authority. Um, and that is that is the difference between how we see scriptural authority and how the Jews viewed it. They viewed it in concentric circles too, 
they had the Torah at the center, and then the prophets, and then another another uh, uh, group they would just call the writings, and then you had the the, the uh, rabbinical tradition, the, the Mishnah, and other things like that, um, that were all built around the central circle, which was the Torah. Now, for us, the center is Christ, and everything goes out from there. Um, the Torah is in there somewhere. It is in there. Yeah, again, we haven't, we haven't gotten rid of the Torah. It's still there. Um, yeah. Any, any authority that the Torah has in our lives is there because of Christ. You know, the authority that the Torah has for us is through the lens of Christ. Is it? Yeah. Can I say? Absolutely. I agree with everything yeah, yeah. that you're saying. Here. I, I'm just thinking of one statement Paul made. I can't go to the exact scripture. I probably could look it up. But he says, referring to the Old Testament, these things are written for your example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people would throw the Old Testament out. No, we do live by grace, not under the law. But things are given for us as an example in the Old Testament, which is under the umbrella of the authority of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Because he was in the Old Testament as well as in you. Yeah. The pattern has to be there for the fulfillment yeah. of the pattern to have any That's significance to it. Exactly. Which I think that's what you're saying. Yes. So. <clears throat> what else? Um, and it all came from God. And when you say applicability, it's changed a little bit with the Old Testament and the New Testament. But back when it was yeah. written, it still came from God. He was the authority of those who wrote. Now I may be jumping ahead a little bit here. Um, I don't want to muddy the waters too much. We at Christ Community Church put a lot of weight on the church fathers. Especially the pre-Nicene fathers. Um, we do not consider them scripture. There is a difference. And there is a line that the pre-Nicene fathers do not cross into the umbrella of scripture. However, they do carry more authority than any modern devotional book. At least in the way that our church views it. Um, and a lot of that simply just has to do with the fact that they were so much closer to the apostles than we were. Um, so when we're talking about concentric circles, you know, the, the church fathers are closer to the inner circles than, say, oh, I don't know, I'm just throwing it, John Piper or any of these guys. Mm -hmm. um, any of the guys that were at the conference, you know, that you gave that series on, you know, that, that's further out than from the inner circle. Um, so the church fathers are, you know, that we, 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 give them, we give them a lot of weight in how we interpret scripture. We approach scripture through this outer circle. You so know. the men at the conference did. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're getting back to the basics. They're getting back to what the father said. And when the reformers were um, when the reformers were trying to uh, get things back down to the bare essentials, they were using the early fathers to do that. You know, they were not they weren't um, making up this stuff in a vacuum. They were reading the early fathers. Martin Luther knew the early church fathers very well. So, I think this is very important also to keep this in a separate, distinct discussion from that of sainthood and of, of um, 
which is a discussion in itself, an important one, okay. but we are referring to the writings of the church fathers as opposed to the reverent, reverent, reverencing them, uh, what do you call it, veneration of church fathers as saints. Yes, yeah, yeah we're in the... <clears throat> Yeah, and, and the reason why we're comparing that to scripture is because they're both yeah. written. We're yeah. talking about the written text. I'm just making sure yeah. that distinction. Yeah, we're talking about the written the written stuff. Here, here's an example, a practical example. We quote the Didache during Eucharist. Just as this broken bread was scattered on the mountains, being gathered together became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. That's not from the Bible. That is from mm -hmm. a... Um, that is from <coughs> approximately 150 AD, somewhere around there, an early church text that was just called The Teaching, and it was a manual for early churches. Um, it was a combination of uh, some practical guidelines mixed with scripture from the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. Um, we include that in the culmination of our worship service. You know, so we, we do give it weight. It has weight. Um, and we value its instruction in our life and how we worship, and yet it's not scripture. So there is a distinction. I'm trying to I'm trying to describe this nuanced approach that exists. We just don't often talk about it in how we yeah mm -hmm. the the world functions by way of authority, and there are many different levels, and they all interact with each other. Um, I would just always caution against spending too much time in commentaries for the early church fathers as compared to your own personal time with the Bible itself. I would very much caution against it because uh, while a, a good scholar mm -hmm. can lead you to a, a, an important truth in the Bible, yeah. maybe quicker than your own studies. You know, I'm not a scholar. Yeah. It, I just don't think we need to underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to work with a person who's working with the Bible. I, I agree with that with one caveat. And that caveat is that um, we cannot approach Scripture apart from tradition. It's impossible. So even though the Holy Spirit is at work in our relationship with God through how we read the Bible, we... There is always tradition involved in that. The fact that we're reading it at all in a language is is tradition. I mean, the English, the English language is a tradition. The translators, that is a tradition. The theology that we bring to the Bible is tradition. Uh, the way we worship together, the way we choose what scriptures to use in our service is a tradition. Um, and there is... There is... Um, there is a trump card, you know, the Christ's authority trumps tradition every time. But they, they're often not in conflict with each other. It's like a it's like a it's like a marriage between a husband and a wife. You know, the husband is the head. But the husband you can't have a husband without a wife either. And uh, we can't approach the authority of Christ without tradition playing at least some part in that. We talked about this a little, bit, a little bit last week, but sola scriptura is is uh, at the end of the day an illusion. 
it's we can talk that scripture we can talk about prima scripture scripture is our primary authority over and above tradition over and above nature over and above these other ways that we get revelation from God uh, you know scripture is the trump card but it doesn't exist in a vacuum either does that make sense it does not to me I, I think I just disagree with your approach yeah. um, I do like to look at commentary some but um, I love when I heard the son the late son of the late Henry Morris once asked his father, he said, you've got this whole library, some of the best commentaries of all blah. Why don't you use them more? And he said, I'll, I just want to stay as close to God's actual words as I can, as I work with the Bible. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so again, human sin and human nature being what it is, I would caution against too much time and too much uh, being uh, even the early church fathers uh, I just think we need to spend most of our time with God's actual words I'm just putting that out here since you know I just want people to hear that too yeah so. yeah well I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that I think yeah I think time is finite if you're gonna spend time on something this serious I would I would encourage you to spend most of your time not in commentaries, but in right. actual words. Even using a dictionary to work with Greek words, you have to be careful because the, the, the producers of the dictionary, you know, their views on things can get, you know, yes. skewed, this sort of thing. So, yeah. I, but anyway, I won't say anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to kind of be sure that's out there. I think I don't think we're I don't think we're disagreeing that much. I think I think we're in agreement. I I, I believe you have a great deal of respect for God's actual word. Yes. I mean, it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, not by the commentary. But again, a good commentator it could lead you to a truth sooner. What I'm really interested in with a commentator or an early church father, why did you think that about that Bible word? Not why did you think that about some generalistic theology? You know, theology. I want to know uh, what that early church father thought about a verse. I want to know why, because mm -hmm. then I can judge if he's being reasonable with it, or I can try to, you know, and you know, and, and, and it's just a process, you know. And again, don't ever underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit working with a person who's working with His Word like that. Again, I agree with that. I would also say don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit working through tradition. Either. Yeah. That works. You know, he works. He works through there also. I mean, most of most of the ways that we interpret Scripture that we take for granted that this is just a way to interpret it, we get that from the early fathers without realizing it. Well, and, I know you're were, not. Yeah. The Jews had some traditions too, which Jesus criticized. Yes. And so I know you would not associate these traditions you're talking about with that type of tradition. But again, I just call. Oh yeah, tradition is not infallible. And here, my my favorite example of how how silly tradition can be sometimes is uh, this blew my mind when I found this out. Um, do you know that uh, the doctrine in the Catholic Church that Mary ascended to heaven mm -hmm. um, that that didn't become official Catholic doctrine until the 1950s. That blew my mind when I found that out. That was, it amazed me. Um, because I had just assumed that they held that belief far earlier than that. So that's just one example of how uh, tradition can go astray very easily. Very easily. 
I think we're seeing a modern example of it in the deconstructionist movement of the scripture. They, the reason they can deconstruct the scriptures and make them say whatever they want is because they've thrown out tradition. Yeah. If you if you look at say uh, whether whether uh, homosexual relationships are a sin or not, you can look not only at scripture to say that, yeah. but you can look at the tradition of the whole church history. Yeah. We've always taught that for two over two for two thousand years. They thought. And, and that and yet somehow in the twenty first century, the the they. Now, tons of believers have decided somehow that it's okay to have a, uh, have a homosexual relationship. So, and it's biblical. It's fine. God ordains it. So, and, uh, and, and that is because they, they, have, they have separated the scriptures from the tradition of the church. Of the church. Did you have something to add? Well, here's, here's the thing. With, in my opinion, I think I think what we have to be careful of is to say that scripture needs to be needs to be kept close to orthodox tradition. Okay. So you, you have to have if, if you take if you take scripture and read it as an island with no moral teaching whatsoever behind it, with no church behind it, having ever influenced your thoughts. You're going to get to places like like David's talking about. You know, you're going to have things people interpreting that yeah. homosexuality relationships are okay. In my opinion, that's going to happen uh, because you don't have the the moral tradition there. You don't have the moral tradition that teaches you to interpret scripture this way. So, at least that's going to that's going to come into play with it. Yeah. Um, church history, orthodoxy won out for a reason. And so I think that what we define as orthodoxy, it won out for a reason. And the reason it won out is because God ordained it to win out. It didn't win out because they won in the yeah. arena of public ideals. It didn't win out because they debated better. It won because that's what God, that's what won the day because that was God's will. And there's your Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we used a phrase last week over and over, and I'm going to reinstate it that phrase is reverent discernment. So that's how we, that is the best way to approach this stuff. And it's a balanced approach. We're discerning in that we're not just going along with every tradition. There are things to discard. There are things that are heretical. There are things that are not helpful for us um, in our context. Um, But if we don't also approach it with a certain amount of reverence, then um, then we end up not seeing God's work through history for what it is. You know, there, it is that that is just as real as uh, God working on an individual believer's level. You know, and then I'm, what I'm saying is these two things go hand in hand; they're not mutually exclusive. Um, they watch fiddle on the roof. What happened is what's the main song that started the whole the whole play starts out with a song called Tradition. Yeah. And he's holding on to it with everything he's got. Yeah. Tradition. But then as the play progresses, he realizes that there's certain things within his tradition that he was holding on to are not necessarily what God wanted. So Jesus Jesus uh, was very critical of how rabbinical tradition had gone astray. Um, 
but he did not kill rabbinical tradition. He was, uh, we, we are harsher on tradition than Jesus was, and that's a danger. We need to, you know, we don't, we don't need to be harsher than Jesus here. Um, I don't understand that. Say what now? You said, I don't understand what you said. Uh, uh, Jesus did not cancel out tradition in his establishment of the new covenant. Do you mean the ones he criticized he did not cancel out? Oh, he criticized and he refined and he pruned, but he did not chop off the trunk. Because yeah. he was really saying you transgress the commandments of God by your tradition. Yeah. So that's a difference to avenue of what he's talking about there. Yes, because they were sinning against God. Yeah. yeah. And he was bringing that to light. You know, we're led by the Spirit of God as believers. So I mean, I agree with what's being said, except uh, I don't have an education, but I've read a few first church fathers, or others like John Owens or Charles Spurgeon, uh, different ones, and I'm blessed to have these aids down. So I agree that it is okay if we're led to do so, and it doesn't contradict the Word of God. Right. Yeah, and if it does contradict, then it's gone. It is. It has no place in your life, um, and we can very easily do that. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to show my hand here a little bit because I think this will be helpful. Because um, I don't want people to get the impression that I'm leading them to agree to something uh, that they didn't see coming. So let me go ahead and read the the. the let me read a quote from. Um, uh, let's see, what's the best way to do this? Let's read a quote from Athanasius, speaking of the church fathers. This is him talking about which books uh, are to be considered scripture and which ones aren't. This is after he describes the Old and New Testament. There are other books besides these not included in the canon but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and wish for instruction in the word of godliness. And then he goes on to list the books that are on our list here. The Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Sirach, and Esther, and Judith, and Tobit. And that, and this is the interesting part, and that which is called the teaching of the apostles, the Didache, which had just come out at that point. Um, so he, he puts, Athanasius put, um, <coughs> the writings of the early church and these, uh, these peripheral canon books in the same category. And I think that is a balanced approach. In as much as you, uh, in as much as you respect and uh, draw value from the early church fathers, I think these these Old Testament books can fit in that same category, you know, and that way we're not putting them on anywhere close to the level of authority that like Paul's epistles or the Gospels or anything like that. We're not trying to sneak them into that category, um, but they hold they hold value above and beyond modern devotionals, you know, and they are they are valuable not just for history but also for instruction. And uh, I, think, I think the proof of that will be seen as we actually get into the text. We still haven't actually read them yet together. 
Um, and I think, um, I think their value will, will surprise. And I think they'll also feel more familiar than maybe a lot of us were expecting. Um, so that's me showing my hand a little bit. That is how I view it. And I put down here in bold after these like you know postulates for consideration, I put, you know, as part of our scriptural tradition, and they are part of our scriptural tradition. Again, they were in our Bibles until only 150 years ago. The peripheral canon is is part of our source for instruction in the Christian faith. You know, um, this means that while we do not consider the peripheral canon to be on the same authoritative level as the Gospels or the Epistles, we do consider them to be beyond the authoritative level of a modern devotional book. We hold it in a similar relationship to the Old Testament as the fathers have to the New Testament. Does that make sense? The, if you have New Testament here and early church fathers here, you could have Old Testament here and peripheral canon here. It's, yeah. And here I use my phrase again. And we may read the peripheral canon similarly to how we read the fathers with a spirit of reverent discernment. There is a lot in the early church fathers that, that we don't hold to. You know, orthodoxy, orthodoxy is found in, in these early church <coughs> fathers hashing it out and disagreeing with each other. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of complex arguments there. Um, and yet... The word Trinity does not exist in the Bible. We get that from the fathers. So there is a value. There is a value right there, a very practical value that we draw from the fathers, just understanding and being able to talk about the Trinity. It's just like the argument, I guess, between Pelagius and Augustine. I mean, Pelagius was actually a heretic, and they were, you know, both of each other back and forth and so the doctrines of the Trinity. And, and and we talked about this again last week, but but God is not afraid of the complexity of history, and we don't have to be either. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. God is glorified in the complexity, not despite the complexity. In the complexity, God is glorified. Um, and he calls us to wrestle through this stuff. And this stuff is complicated. It is... It is tricky, um, and it's messy, um, but we are the Israel of God, and the name Israel means wrestling, wrestling with God, yes. and that is, our, that is our job as believers, and that is what, that's what God wants from his people, to, to struggle through this stuff, and, to, and it is in the struggle that our relationship with God himself deepens. I remember it. Man, that was preaching years ago when I'm done, and praise in Psalms, patiently waiting. He was teaching on this, patiently waiting. And that definition means twisting in pain. So it's pain, for example, emotional, uh, intellectual twisting in pain sometimes in trying to understand what God's telling us. But he's saying, just trust me. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, I'll say it again. We're not talking about the milk here. We're not talking about the fundamentals. This is the meat and potatoes. This is yeah. Well, it's like, it's almost like studying any of I'm going to study a book called prayer because it helps teach me more about prayer. That's fine. I don't 
holding the same position as I do Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all that at the same time, if it's helpful, you know, this is just this is exactly the same thing looking at these things it's like <coughs> looking at it as a devotional book nowadays. Just we may see in it how why it's more important than this particular devotional book. That that book is actually a, a fantastic example. Because it, that book is all about the Celtic tradition of scripture, <laughs> you know, and the, the value that that book has is um, uh, drawing us into the the tradition of the Celtic way of prayer. Um, but it also has practical individual value too for your personal one-on-one relationship with God. These things go together, and that's what I'm trying to I'm trying my best to say here. So that's actually a, a great okay, read a book by Billy Graham. Maybe you can get a ton of stuff out of it. And we can we can think, man, thank you, Billy Graham, for writing down this book on how to be saved. You know, so yeah. but at the same time, it's not the same as reading Matthew Mark Luke John. <laughs> so. Um I think it's also it's also uh it's worth pointing out with that Athanasius quote that I read earlier, um that he he mentioned uh that these peripheral canon books are the way he said it was appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and wish for instruction in the word of godliness so there's sort of this idea that these books are helpful for us to understand what's going on in um, the books where we get our doctrine from you know these 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 stories these historical things these wisdom writings they they set the stage for what we find in the New Testament. And that's why I say that this, the things that we read in the study are going to feel a lot more familiar than maybe some of us were expecting. Because um, Christ was very close to these books. The apostles were very close to these books. The early church fathers were very close to these books. And um, normal... Christ was close to the apocrypha? Uh, I will... I will Say again the quote that I had earlier. I gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That, that Christ, Christ is quoting the Apocrypha in that moment. Um, um, and that's just one example. We will come across many more. Um, so. Well, it's, it's just like I know in Corinthians, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a quote that Paul st- takes right directly from a Greek play. Bad, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Hmm. That, that was that was lifted from a play that was written five hundred years before Paul. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, he so somehow he had to be familiar with that quote, you know, whether it was just floating around or something like that. But but it, but it, it became part of scripture, and now it's well. It's also a summary of a large part of Proverbs too. It's kind of it's kind of a sound by version of most of the Book of Proverbs. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a, a, yeah. He was. But just I'm just saying there are there are there, you know I mean in 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 the world's search for reality and truth, a lot of people are misled. But it doesn't. We, we, there's something in us that God ordains, placed inside of us, that makes us want to search and find out the truth. You know. So yeah. And, uh, and if people are sensitive enough to it, God promises that He'll show them. Um, I, I, I want to reiterate something I said last week also. Um, I have on here in my reference reasons why Protestants reject 
you know, what they call the apocrypha, I call, I call the peripheral canon. There are reasons for not including these in our Bible. They, they, they weren't just, uh, it wasn't an arbitrary decision. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that it was a stupid decision, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. There are reasons why we don't have them in our Bibles. Um, and so I've put these down here for people to look at. Um, and these are all the reasons I could find. You know, I've searched as many sources as I could, and they all fall under the umbrella of these six categories. Um, I mean, in the spirit of full disclosure, to me, these arguments do break down at a certain point, one by one. I mean, I can, we could go through them, but, um, you know, so these, these arguments are not unrefutable, but they are there. So for people, for people skeptical about these books and for people who are uh, hesitant about thinking them as being part of our scripture tradition, um, you know, you do have, there, there are some grounds that you can stand on. That might be a good place to close. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to say. Yeah, I think that's a good place to close. This this next week, um, <clears throat> this next week we'll start looking at the text themselves. If you look in your on your reference, there's uh, there's a few books with asterisks. I think there's three of them. Those are books that are included in our lectionary, the ones with asterisks. Uh, I think it's Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, and a book called Baruch. Um, these are mostly in the wisdom tradition category, like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. Um, and they are they are part of our our lectionary system where we decide what readings are used every Sunday um, and we don't include them in our bulletins and I'm not suggesting that we do um, but um, I thought that might be a good place to start for, for reading through these uh, because these are these, uh, these are closer to our how we worship than we even realize and um, we're, just, we're just calling attention to what's already there we're not we're not doing anything new here in this study. We're just, we're, just, uh, we're just exposing what's already part of our tradition. The fact that we use the lectionary at all means that we have these books included in how we do things. So that's what we'll, that's what we'll look at next week. Um, we'll look at a few texts from Wisdom of Solomon, and uh, we'll be interpreting it from a Christological perspective um, because that's how we interpret everything here at Christ Community, Scripture and otherwise. We, we look at everything through the lens of Christ and the Christological approach to Scripture, which we get that interpretation from the fathers, by the way. Um, any final thoughts before we close? I, have, I just have one question regarding the reasons why Protestants reject. For yeah. The reasons that you said you found why Protestants reject the peripheral canon, not so much... Does that make sense that you were doing some research on why, why do we reject the, the apocryphal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, found, right? if, if you if you if you were to Google right now yeah. reasons why 
the Apocrypha yeah. is not in the Bible. These are the reasons okay. we find. The only reason yeah. I ask is, is uh, with number five, it's never been quoted by Jesus, but then bringing out the idea that he brings up in his lament over Jerusalem. Kind of a direct quote, ain't it's, it? It's a direct yeah. quote. Yeah. You know, and a yeah. few weeks ago we were in, uh, on Sunday morning, you know, uh, I, I preached from um, the uh, parable of the prodigal son, and that there's a lot of principles that, that, that are informed by the wisdoms, uh, wisdom of uh, Solomon as well as Tobit. Yeah. There's a lot of principles that come out in that in that illustration, yeah. that parable from from the apocryphal. Yeah, and I mean, I just used one so we wouldn't get yeah. lost in the weeds. But there's a lot more. Oh no, I, I mean, there are. the I'm Pharisees not... come to Jesus with a question about you know a woman who got married seven times. Yeah. That's a story straight from yeah. the apocrypha. That yeah. is like that story is actually like. They, they didn't pull that question out of thin yeah. air. That's yeah, actually I was just asking just yeah, for yeah. clarification. Um, and then we also we I mean we we also looked at that Ephesians quote. Yeah. You know Paul quoting. The and then we uh, and then we also looked at that Hebrews one three. You know Christ is the radiance and the image of God. That's again straight from these books. You so, said that you've got like all of these. Specific references. Uh, I've got them right here. I'll show them to you after, okay. after we close out. Right um, what was that, Charlotte? I think what you said that. In your yeah. study, all of them had some somewhat refutable in your point of view. You said nearly all of these. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're coming up on time, so I don't yeah. really want to get too much into that. <laughs> no. We can talk no, about no, no. that. No, no, no. I'm just saying, no, no, no. I'm just saying that that's what you yeah. said. I, yeah. When I, I read I, that, I, I knew that. I am not very convinced by any of those said. arguments. Yeah. So. I feel like they'll yeah. filter into our discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, Thank you all. Thank you guys. Thank you.